Okay, if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from Luke 15, 11 through 32. Okay. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I starve to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long, uh, still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, his, with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older, older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So one of the refrains of my life is in conversations, sitting around just saying, Yo, you know, that reminds me of a song. Um, something I'll say a lot, and I think, you know, Beth and I have been together almost 20 years, and I'm still having these moments where I say, you know, that reminds me of a song, and I'll sing a few bars or play the song. She's like, yep, never heard you mention that one before. So I have this, like, library, apparently, of these songs in my head that I can't forget. Like, I may even, some of them I would like to try to, but I can't. They're, they're just, they're in there, and there's so many things. Like, I remember songs so much better, and I think a lot of us, we remember songs better than so much other things. I'll forget um, a date, a task, a name, <laughs> but I'm not forgetting these songs. Why is it we remember them so much? And of course, that the, the nature of songs, the nature of poetry, is that it, it is, drives home 
that they're meant to be remembered, you know, the, the repetition or the structure and whatever your genre of music, whatever you like to listen to, you know, if you study the music, um, you, you'll learn. I mean, there's, there, there is legitimate structure in all these types of music. And I'm, I mean, I'll spend time in the world of pop music, or I'll spend time studying jazz or studying a lot of different things. And you, you can learn the rules of the road. And then, of course, what a musician is doing is then taking that structure and then playing with it playing with the expectations that we have and maybe giving us something new along the way. But that the structure and a lot of the repetition is, is how we remember, and that repetition then prepares us for the times and the songs that maybe we most love that have some kind of variant or does something just a little different, and all of a sudden it just captures our imagination. Luke 15 is, is like that. Luke 15 is, is really a, like a song. There, there's a lot of ways in which the entire chapter has this kind of lyrical quality. It's one of the uh, um, literary, it's one of, uh, literary wise, it's one of the high points of scripture. It's, it's a stunning, stunning chapter in so many different ways. And, and it's probably the most beloved chapter in Luke and, and one of the most memorable, the prodigal song we just read is one of the most memorable stories in scripture. Uh, why is that? I mean, a lot of it because it, it's written kind of like a song. It has this lyrical quality that just captures our imagination. And a, a great song is like a great story. They both capture our imagination and become so memorable to us. Um, but, but it has a sense that, say, the, the, the lyrical nature of it is Luke 15 is, is, is telling us a series of stories that are responding to a single moment. Uh, and, and, and as it does so, what it's inviting us to do is really think about the very heart of God and to consider ourselves and our own hearts in relationship to him. If you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to open to, to Luke 15. I do want to spend time in those first 10 verses, get the whole chapter together, because it's, it's meant to be read together. It's meant to be studied together. But it opens with this... Um, this problem that Jesus has had all along, and it's a pattern that we've seen before. Luke, um, Luke is very strategic. He doesn't repeat a lot of things, but when he repeats them, he repeats them with purpose, again, like a songwriter. Uh, and the problem that Jesus has always had is he is, um, we're known by the company we keep, uh, and, and, and the religious people of the day don't like who Jesus is associating with. Verse 1 the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, we've just spent the last couple of weeks, we were in chapter 14, and we've seen Jesus at the table, having table fellowship with Pharisees. So we, knows, we know that he will eat with Pharisees. Uh, and, and we've seen, as we studied those chapters, that the banqueting table is a big deal in Scripture. It's, uh, it's, it's a significant thing that's going on, uh, and, it, and it echoes something all the way back in Isaiah that, that, that there's an expectation that, that God is setting, I mean, heaven is depicted as a, like a banqueting table that the people of the world are being invited to. So there's this sense of who you dine with, who you fellowship with, really matters. Um, and, and so Jesus is eating with the people that are the outcasts. To, to, to eat with sinners is a big deal for Pharisees. It's a big deal for religious people at the time because you're known by the company you keep. Uh, you, you are identifying yourself with the people that you welcome to your table. You know, I think of uh, really, a, probably we don't have the same standard in our day, but think of maybe one example is there's these, you know, anytime that uh, like some politician gets criticized because they, you know, had a fundraising dinner and had this nasty person show up at their 
their, their dinner. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that they have to fend off is a lot, you know, I, I wanted their money, but I don't really want to be associated with them. Uh, but that's the problem they have is they start having this table fellowship. They get associated with them. Um, these Pharisees and scribes, and, you know, we've talked a lot about them along the way. The Pharisees generally are pretty negative to Jesus. You're going to see exceptions. We've seen some openness among some. But when they're paired together, when the Pharisees and the scribes, some of your translations, when it's the Pharisees and the lawyers, they get together, it's a dangerous combination. And it's always negative about Jesus when these folks are together. They're seeing him eat with these despised outcasts, um, these outcasts of society. The tax collectors are the ones that have violated um, the purity of Judaism by compromising with Rome. They're making their living a very luxurious living uh, and, and a very corrupt living for many of them uh, by really uh, in, in, in aligning themselves with the people that the, many of the Jews would consider the enemies. The sinners are those who've, because of the patterns, the things they've done in their life, whatever it is that's happened to them, they see themselves as outcasts within the community. These folks are the ones that Jesus is eating with, and they're drawn. Notice the language there. They are drawing near to hear Jesus. And so that creates the question. And they're grumbling. They say, hey, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So at some level, he must be a sinner. He must be one of the bad guys. Um, so there's this pattern. Uh, they're singing this song in response to Jesus' pattern of fellowship, who he's associating with. And so he tells them the parables. And I want to look at the first two parables together to see um, how they tell the story. Because they're, they're saying the same thing. You'll hear it. You can hear it just as it unfolds. So he, he begins with a question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or... What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, again, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it starts with these two stories of lost things. And, and the lost things get progressively more precious. That's the repetition. So it starts with the loss. There's one lost sheep of 99. And there's different aspects of that parable. You say, well, he's, he's got 100 sheep, and that actually would be a reasonably wealthy shepherd at the time to have that large of a flock. And though he has this large flock, though he still has 99 sheep, he's lost one, and so he's dropping everything, even though he has plenty, to recover that one. Similarly, then, with the coin, now you're dealing with a poor woman. Everything about this picture is one who is impoverished. She has ten coins. That would not be a lot. That's about ten days. She's got about a week and a half worth of wages saved up. She's vulnerable. And so to lose one-tenth of that, that's getting to be a big deal. It's, a, it's more, from one out of a hundred to one out of ten. Uh, but it's also a, the, her own picture is of one who is more vulnerable. Um, and yet, notice, in both of them, 
the, the translations can be tricky, but the translations are correct in, in framing this whole thing as a question. That's, a big, that's important. And, and both of them, they're framed as really as rhetorical questions. Well, if you lost one of your 100 sheep, you, wouldn't you go after them? Well, of course you would. If you lost one of your 10 coins, wouldn't you like sweep everything and search your house to try to find the coin? Well, of course you would. In, in both cases, there's this like rhetorical question that's being posed because it should be obvious to them what people would do. They, they would drop everything. And really, the main difference between the two, and you don't really have to pour too much into it, is that when you get to the lost coin, there's a lot more details that go into this picture of this search that's happening. You know, she's sweeping the floor and looking over. better now John let me know if I need to swap the battery out I think we do John if you want to grab a couple batteries for me want Larry until they get us a microphone so there's these rhetorical questions it's obvious that um, they should drop everything and do and then in both stories the key is really there's not as much emphasis on the search or the details, but the, the key in both of them is what happens when they're found. When they're found, all are invited to join in the celebration. So the shepherd comes home, he, he takes that sheep over its neck and he hauls him home, and when he comes home, he's calling everybody together, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And it's a similar language. What does she say when she finds it? She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. There's this, this friends and neighbors that are called to join in the celebration. They're called to come together and have this celebration. Um, you, yeah, you can bring them up to me, Tom. Um, they join in this, and they're, they're, he's inviting them, and then he drives home the message in each case. Hang on a second. Let me swap. Much better. Now I can run laps. That's good. Um, so they, they, they call for the celebration, and then at each point, notice the summary the, the, the lesson that he wants them to drive home is, is really about who God is. He makes it very explicit as he goes through these parables that you're seeing the shepherd and you're seeing the woman. You're seeing a picture of the character of God. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And that, that language of the righteous that don't need it is um, an ominous thing, and I think it comes, comes to bear when we get to the, the story of the prodigal son. It's similarly in, in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner repents. Leaves off the second piece of it, but there's your message again and again, that this is what God does. And actually, right there, you see something of the answer to why is it that Jesus is, is, is eating with these uh, sinners and tax collectors that are drawing near to him, well, it, it explains, I would argue, uh, what that means. What does it mean that they're drawing near to him? It's that they're being drawn to Jesus, not just because he does miracles or he's really interesting or he's a great teacher. They're drawn to him because they see in Jesus the offer of a real and viable second chance with the God of the universe. 
And, and some are coming in repentance. They're turning their life around. They're changing. And so the reason why he's drawing, he's willing to eat with them is because he's seeing lives changed and God and the angels around him are celebrating when sinners repent. That's what God is like. And the invitation from those two uh, stories is for the friends and neighbors to join in the celebration. Well, that's the pattern of the song. And now you get to the third verse and things start to get interesting because now you open up and I've, I've said it already a number of times the story of the prodigal son at some level it's really not the story of the prodigal son and there's a lot of different other names that people propose it's the story of the of the father or it's the father and his two sons I think that's probably the most accurate because what begins as this vivid picture of this prodigal becomes a story both then of the son and of the father and of his brother. But it starts with a real similar pattern. Now there's this man with two sons. So think about we've gone from one out of a hundred, one out of ten, now it's one out of two, and it's the younger son. So actually in their culture that's the less valuable. The firstborns get the priority in their world. But it's still, it's one of his two sons. But this younger son now comes to him and issues this demand, um, and he wants, you know, sep- give me my share of my property. And there, there's a lot of debate over this moment. Is, is this the f- son saying, why don't you go ahead and act as if you're dead, and just go and give me my money now? There's actually not a lot of precedent in Jewish inheritance law for this request. But any version of it, it is an insult. He opens up with this insult, this shaming, said, I really don't want to be with you, I just want your money, let me take what's mine and I'll go. And, but yet there's not a debate over that. There's not a fight. It's um, the father simply responds by dividing his property between the two sons. Um, and that's a significant little piece of the story that becomes important later on. That under Jewish inheritance laws, what would happen is that if, if you have two sons, it would be the firstborn would get the double share. So his estate would be divided three ways. The younger son gets a third of the estate. The older son gets two-thirds. And he he does. He divides them up, gives it both to them. Notice it's both of them that receive that. And the younger son now heads off. And I I love the the translation here, that vivid image that he goes off to the far country. He's going as far away as he can from the father, from the family. Going as far away as he can. And then he squanders his property in reckless living. He squanders that life. And I think we can all fill in blanks of stories, either from our own stories, our own journey, or those that we've known and loved who have done exactly that, who have some rich table set before them, some abundance of opportunity just wasted all away. And there's just tragic stories that can fill each of our minds in different ways of what that looks like. But he squanders it, spends it all, and then something happens. There's this, um, the famine. And I notice like what really creates the crisis is something that he didn't cause. It's a famine. He didn't have any control over. But that's what happens is that you have these external things that go on. And because in his case, because of the bad choices that he's made, because of the way that he has squandered the inheritance that he has, all of that safety net is gone. And so while he could say, well, it's the famine, that's the problem, it was his choices that created that vulnerability so that when the famine came, he had no options. 
And, and for us, I think it's hard for us to feel what they would have felt when Jesus is sharing this story, especially when he's talking to scribes and Pharisees. How bad does it get, verse 15, that he goes out and he hires himself, one, he hires himself out to a foreigner. So he's working for a Gentile, which at that point, the scribes and Pharisees like, are like, ew. Um, so it's a little uncomfortable already. And what is he doing? He's hiring himself out to the Gentile so he can go out into the fields and feed the pigs. And there really is no lower job for a Jew in the first century than to have to be around the pigs. I mean, that's the, the, the essence of what an unclean animal is. So here he is, you know, slopping the pigs, feeding them. That's, he's as far away from his father as he could possibly get, except then the next verse. Because it's so bad, even though he's got a job, it's not feeding him enough. He's still starving himself. And so he's looking at the slop that the pigs are eating, this unclean animal, and he's like, that actually looks pretty good. You know, I've spent a lot of time, especially as a kid, my granddad had a farm, I spent a lot of time around livestock. I've never longed to eat what they were eating. Like, it just didn't happen. Um, but here he is, longing to eat what the pigs have, knowing that it would be better than his lot in life. Um, so there's this, this descent into a truly lost state. And if you want to link it to the language of those first two parables, he is the sheep. He, he's that one sheep. He is that, the lost sheep. He is the lost coin. He's lost. And, and the, the vividness of this picture just lets us feel all of this these consequences that he's feeling for the choices that he's made, the life that he's lived. And he reaches this low point. But then there's this turning point, one of the key turning points in the story, verse 17, is that he wakes up. And again, I love the image here that when he came to himself, it's a, a vivid picture. In just those few words, it's a vivid picture for us of, again, something probably many of us can relate to in our own lives, can uh, know others that have gone through this. They're in some kind of season of rebellion. Their life is falling apart. They're making a whole lot of bad choices. And I know I've had those heartbreaking conversations with people that I've loved and cared for who are making these awful choices. And you're like, you don't have to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. But for them, it does. And they, they, but there comes a moment for many of them um, where they're like, what have I done? Uh, and we have that moment where we wake up and say, yeah, this is terrible. I've got to get out of this. For some, it's, in a lot of human terms, it's too late. Like, they've made this mess of their lives. I've had, you know, heartbreaking conversations with, you know, a lot of, you know, men, several men in the middle of their life, and they go through a season where they make, boy, a bunch of bad choices, and they're kind of like following that midlife crisis script, and then all of a sudden they come to the wake up, and they're just you know, feel awful, but their family's gone, They've, you know, life has fallen apart, they've lost a lot of credibility. They, he comes to himself. He realizes that it would be better to be a slave in his father's house than to rule over the pigs in the far country, something of what Milton would, would have said. He realizes he's in a terrible place. And yeah, it's just better to be back in his father's house, even at the lowest of the low, um, that language there, the uh, how many of my father's hired servants, that's the day laborers. That's the lowest in the pecking order. That's not even a slave. The slaves are, the, they're the low end of the family, but they're still considered part of the family. 
He's like, I'm even looking at the day laborers, and so I'd rather just go back and just do that. And that's what he says to him. He, he kind of prepares the script, this speech, as he longs for home. He said, well, here's what I'm going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Just make me a day laborer. Just let me be just on the backside of the property, but give me enough that I can eat because they're better. it's better off than your house, even at the lowest of the low, than it is where I'm at now. He comes to him, and what this is a picture of as he comes to himself is a picture of repentance. You notice he's coming, really planning to go to his father as a beggar. There's no sense of entitlement. What is he asking? He's asking for grace. He's asking for mercy. I, I, I deserve nothing. You owe me nothing, but I want to be with you. Will you take me? He prepares that speech, and then he begins to go to his father. Now, here's one of those differences. I think the variations in the stories teach us something as well. Um, because what's happened in the, the, the story of the shepherd, I mean, the, the, he loses a sheep and drops everything and goes after him. And then you know, the woman loses her coin, and she drops everything and goes after it. What, what happens here? The father gives the son his inheritance, lets him go. And, and the son has to wake up and come home. Where's the father in all of this? Um, there's a, some of, you know, talked about the father as being kind of passive in this moment. He lets him go. Um, and, and I think that's one of the tensions. Um, you know, I've, I said a few weeks ago, anytime you're interpreting a parable, a parable is not an allegory, so you don't want to overread it. And a lot of times with parables, we overread them, we overinterpret them. You know, we look for every little detail and we try to see every detail as some kind of theological point. I think the, this story is probably the one that pushes hardest against that because it's so vivid in its detail. It's inviting us to, where is God in this? Who is God? What is God like? But I think in that, that variant, from the active searching to something that's a little more passive, though I say not entirely passive, we're going to see that in a minute, um, it's presenting something of a tension that exists in Scripture. Um, the picture of the, the shepherd that, that drops everything and goes to find the sheep and the picture of the woman that drops everything to find the coin is a picture of a God who initiates. God takes the initiative to find his lost children. And that is certainly true in Scripture. The, the mere fact that Jesus is there teaching them is a, you know, a billboard statement of the initiative of God to find lost people. God takes initiative. Our salvation is grounded in the initiative of God. God has to initiate. Uh, but the other picture of the, of the tension is that Scripture is consistent that there is this human moral agency, moral responsibility. I don't like the term free will. I think it's often misunderstood. But that, that's often the term that will be used. But this sense of moral agency that um, God doesn't initiate, he doesn't save through force, through coercion, through manipulation, through this like pressured environment. He saves through, um, through uh, offering, through uh, you know, giving the opportunity, through persuasion. Uh, the, his method, the way that God sovereignly builds his church is by offering by persuading that some might respond. And that's, that's a tension. And you're going to find, as you get into Scripture, there's, 
it's going to take you to some hard places. Both sides of that will take you to some challenging places. But notice here in, in Luke 15, both are here. That you have a God who drops everything to find, and you've got a, a God who permits the rebellion to happen. But it's not entirely passive here, because notice what the Father is doing. So he, he goes to come back to the Father, and then verse 20, but while he's still a long way off, the Father saw him and felt compassion. He sees the Son making his way back. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And all those three words, we probably can run past that. They would not. The idea of the father, the head of a household, a dignified Middle Eastern man, first century, running, not going to happen. Hugging, not going to happen. Kissing him, not going to happen. In a sense, he's bringing a kind of like dishonor. It's an undignified activity that's happening here. It's not what a father head of a household would have done in that time. Uh, but in doing that, he is, you see that sense of, of readiness to welcome back in. You see the readiness of the father to welcome. You see the urgency to restore at the slightest hint that there's a, a return. Um, and notice that speech, um, it's the, the, the welcome and the restoration has already happened before the son has to say a word. It's not that he's sitting there waiting to say, okay, let me see. Like, are you going to say the right words? Are you, I'm kind of, I'm a little suspicious about you, so you just prove it to me. Where are you at? No. He's embraced him. He's kissed him. He's, he has offered that restoration. He has welcomed the restoration. And so when the son, he, he gives his, part of his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice he kind of leaves off that last thing. Hey, just treat me like one of your hired hands. That sense of embrace that he's received is almost as if that would be almost impertinent at that point. It doesn't make sense because he's been offered a place of restoration before he's even given the language of repentance. And then the father doesn't treat him like a hired hand. What does he do? He calls for his servants to bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and, and cut up the fattened calf. And all of that is a, is a restoration. The heart of repentance has met a heart desiring restoration. He gives his son, the wayward son, this place of honor with this big celebration. The fattened calf is the one that they're saving up for the big festivals, the big holidays. So they're, they're, they're going to have this giant celebration. They're going to give the best meat in the house in a family that, you know, normally meal to meal, they don't eat meat except on special occasions. So they're having the best celebration. Restore them with robe and ring and shoes. and uh, it's, it's an echo of Joseph. It's an echo of a, of, a, of a princely kind of thing where he's being restored into this place of invitation. And so there's this restoration that's happening and just like in those first two parables, there's this immediate invitation for friends and neighbors to come and join in the celebration. So the servants are called to join in the celebration. And what does he say? My son was dead and is alive again. My son was lost and is found. There is a sense where the son returning home is a kind of resurrection, a new life. And everyone, in verse 24, begins to celebrate. And at that point, you could end the story. You could have three different verses of the same story, and you could end it now. And you could just say, see, you know, it's, uh, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Done. But now, 
there's this other piece that shapes our understanding of the whole chapter. Because now, verse 25 opens up. And again, it could be just more details of the celebration. The older son was in the field. He came near the house. He heard music and dancing. Calls to the servant, explains what happened. The servant is very, like, matter-of-fact. It's like, well, here's what happened. So, of course, we're celebrating. So, it's like the servant's not fighting this. Hey, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf. He's received him back safe and sound. End of story. The brother joins in the celebration. Have the wrap-up verse. You know, we're gone. But, verse 28 happens. The brother is invited, the older son, is invited to share in the celebration. He's supposed to be the friends and neighbors of the parable, but he rejects it. And when he rejects it, in a sense, this is like that surprising fourth version of the parable. You can read it as kind of the epilogue i think you read this as yet another version there's four parables here because what happens here he's but he's angry and he refused to go and so his father came out and entreated him he's angry he rejects the father's celebration notice that he's doing in his own way the same thing that the younger son did when the younger son asks for his inheritance he's shaming his father rejecting him When the older son is standing outside of the house, refusing to join in his father's celebration, he is shaming his father. The older son and the younger son are are walking the same path, though it looks very different. He's shaming his father, and just as the father had ran to meet the younger son, so he comes out, he, in a sense, in a very undignified way, he leaves his own party, which would bring dishonor on him in the first century so that he can come out and plead with the brother to find out what's going on. So there is this parallel as he's invited to share in the celebration. Um, And there's also a kind of reversal. The younger son has been outside and has now been brought in. Here, the older son was inside the family and is now outside. Um, But there's this revelation that happens. Because as they talk, we realize it's not just about the younger brother and his wayward ways, but it says something very significant about the older brother and how he related to the father. Because he answers him in verse 29, he says, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friend. There's four things there. So how does he conceive of his relationship with his father? It's a relationship of service, enslavement. Um, I have slaved for you, would be a fair interpretation, or a fair translation. And I never disobeyed your commands. So what was it about? He's been enslaved to him. He's been following the commands. So here the father is presented some like overlord, some tyrant that he is simply serving, slaving over night and day. And yet you never even gave me a young goat. You talk about the fattened calf. The goat's like the throwaway meal. You're not even going to serve me that. And he feels this sense of separation. And notice, it's not that he wanted to have a young goat that we could celebrate together. I wanted the young goat so I could party with my friends. The, young, the older son doesn't even want a relationship with the father. All of a sudden, the, the older son is showing that while an insider, he was in truth always an outsider. He has this sense of his relationship to the Father as a relationship of duty 
without love, duty without affection. And that is no real relationship at all to relate to father and son. He has misunderstood the relationship at its very core. And so what does he do? Well, how does the father respond? He said, well, he, of course, he, he says, he doesn't even reject the relationship with, with the son, he said, his brother. He says, when this son of yours, not his brother, when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, how would he know that? He doesn't. Thinking the worst, assuming the worst of his brother. You killed the fattened calf for him. And so there's this dripping kind of jealousy and, and just animosity, hatred of his brother and of his father's ways that he would respond to his brother that way. So how does the father respond? He said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. It was, some translations, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the repetition there. There's this resurrection that has happened, and it was necessary for us to celebrate. There's an offer that the father gives for the older son. And it's offering the same hope of restoration that the younger son has. But for the older son, his restoration will come as he learns to share his father's heart for his brother. The echo here, Jesus is, in a sense, repackaging the story of Jonah. If you go back and look at Jonah, you'll see the story laid out for you because the same thing happens. Jonah is called to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh. He refuses. He runs as far as way. He gets swallowed up by the fish. He spends that time there. He repents. And as he repents, he's thrown back up on the, on the shore. And he goes and celebrates. He goes and preaches to Nineveh. And Nineveh repents and turns to God. And that should be the end of the story of Jonah, just like we've seen here. You have the celebration. You have the faithful prophet goes, faithfully preaches. God redeems a people. Wrap it up. Roll credits. Except then, in response to it, the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah goes off seeing the repentance of Nineveh and goes and pouts. Sits under a tree and just can't believe it. And then God actually has the tree grow up and then he withers away. And so then Jonah's mad because he lost his tree. And finally, Jonah just wants to die. Just kill me now. Uh, and what is it, that it that's really angering him? He's angered at the idea that God would offer repentance to these nasty people that he just preached to. He can't believe they would do it. And, and the ending of the story of Jonah is really a question, which is, how could I not redeem these people? And, and essentially, it's an invitation to Jonah, will you join with me? Will you share my heart for lost people? And that's, that's where this one ends. It's, it's an echo here that, that there's this invitation for the brother to share in God's heart and the Father's heart for the wayward. And if you share in that heart, you will love to see the restoration of your brother. But here's the ominous tone that I think exists under the ending here. What happens if he won't? If he won't share in the father's heart, then he will live as the younger brother did, as an outsider. Even though he was given, you notice he was actually given the same inheritance, he could have Cut up one of the goats anytime he wanted if he wanted to go have a party with his, his friends. He had all of this stuff. He owned everything. But he was living as a slave. He was living as one who was living under this, this heavy hand of the Father. He had constructed a relationship that had no relationship with reality. And if he doesn't share the Father's heart for the Son, 
he will live in that place and he will ultimately have no inheritance. And that is the threat. We've seen it already here in the last few chapters. That's the threat that hovers over these Pharisees and scribes. That though you're an insider, though you have all this knowledge and all this experience, if you turn away, if you will not accept my heart, then you will have no part of me. And that's where the story ends. It's just a question. Will they join in God's heart? And that's really our keys. The first of our keys is that God loves restoring lost people. God has a heart for compassion. He has a heart for restoration. And God takes the initiative. Jesus is there bringing a restoration, bringing an offer to raise the dead, to, to, to bring people from death to life. But the second key is to recognize that insiders can, can really be outsiders. Um, religious observance can produce a kind of coldness, the coldness that you see in the older brother. The key to a religious life a life spent among church people and church life that, that doesn't produce that coldness is that to recognize that God has given us this life to live, to, to express and to cultivate relationships. That we are here cultivating first a relationship with God and cultivating a relationship with one another. And, and as we cultivate those relationships, there will be a connection between the two. Third, the path to restoration is through repentance. We are called to empty of ourselves, ourselves of ourselves. We are called to come to be filled up in grace. We are never, can never approach God from a place of entitlement. There's never enough that we can do to where we can say, God, you owe me. Uh, but all we can do is to receive what we can never earn. And then fourth, that we cultivate that relationship with God by sharing his heart for lost people. Our vertical relationship, that relationship with God, will impact our horizontal relationships, the relationships that we have with one another, and vice versa. If we are unloving to others, it will shape how we see and how we relate to God. God has a heart for restoration and invites us to share in that. So God is shaping our hearts to share his heart. Uh, his heart is for finding lost people. And my prayer for each of us is that we will share in that heart as well. Let's pray. God, I pray for every person here. I pray you will help us to see in ourselves the way that we uh, love or don't love lost people in the way you do. Shape our heart to reflect your heart for lost people in how we live. In Christ's name, amen. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.